Chapter 19 of the Works of the Right Honourable Edmund Burke, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. The Works of the Right Honourable Edmund Burke, Volume 1, by Edmund Burke. Chapter 19. Part 2 of Observations on a Late Publication, entitled The Present State of the Nation. The reader does not, I hope, imagine that I mean seriously to set about the refutation of these uningenious paradoxes and reveries without imagination. I state them only that we may discern a little in the questions of war and peace, the most weighty of all questions, what is the wisdom of those men who are held out to us as the only hope of an expiring nation. The present ministry is indeed of a strange character, at once indolent and distracted. But if a ministerial system should be formed, actuated by such maxims as are avowed in this piece, the vices of the present ministry would become their virtues. Their indolence would be the greatest of all public benefits, and a distraction that entirely defeated every one of their schemes would be our only security from destruction. To have stated these reasonings is enough, I presume, to do their business, but they are accompanied with facts and records which may seem of a little more weight. I trust, however, that the facts of this author will be as far from bearing the touchstone as his arguments. On a little inquiry, they will be found as great an imposition as the successes they are meant to depreciate, for they are all either false or fallaciously applied, or not in the least to the purpose for which they are produced. First, the author, in order to support his favourite paradox, that our possession of the French colonies was of no detriment to France, has thought proper to inform us that they put themselves into the hands of the English, he uses the same assertion, in nearly the same words, in another place. Her colonies had put themselves into our hands. Now, in justice, not only to fact and common sense, but to the incomparable valour and perseverance of our military and naval forces thus unhandsomely traduced, I must tell this author that the French colonies did not put themselves into the hands of the English. They were compelled to submit. They were subdued by dint of English valour. Will the five years' war carried on in Canada, in which fell one of the principal hopes of this nation, and all the battles lost and gained during that anxious period, convince this author of his mistake? Let him inquire of Sir Geoffrey Amherst, under whose conduct that war was carried on, of Sir Charles Saunders, whose steadiness and presence of mind saved our fleet, and were so eminently serviceable in the whole course of the siege of Quebec, of General Monckton, who was shot through the body there, whether France put her colonies into the hands of the English. Though he has made no exception, yet I would be liberal to him. Perhaps he means to confine himself to her colonies in the West Indies, but surely it will fare as ill with him there as in North America, 
whilst we remember that in our first attempt at Martinico we were actually defeated, that it was three months before we reduced Guadeloupe, and that the conquest of the Havana was achieved by the highest conduct, aided by circumstances of the greatest good fortune. He knows the expense both of men and treasure at which we bought that place. However, if it had so pleased the peacemakers, it was no dear purchase, for it was decisive of the fortune of the war and the terms of the treaty. The Duke of Nivernois thought so. France, England, Europe considered it in that light. All the world, except the then friends of the then ministry, who wept for our victories and were in haste to get rid of the burden of our conquests. This author knows that France did not put those colonies into the hands of England, but he well knows who did put the most valuable of them into the hands of France. In the next place, our author is pleased to consider the conquest of those colonies in no other light than as a convenience for the remittances to France, which he asserts that the war had before suspended, but for which a way was opened, by our conquest, as secure as in time of peace. I charitably hope he knows nothing of the subject. I referred him lately to our commanders for the resistance of the French colonies. I now wish he would apply to our custom-house entries and our merchants for the advantages which we derived from them. In 1761, there was no entry of goods from any of the conquered places but Guadeloupe. In that year it stood thus, Imports from Guadeloupe, value, £482,179. In 1762, when we had not yet delivered up our conquests, the account was, Guadeloupe, £513,244. Martinico, £288,425. Total imports in 1762, value, eight hundred and one thousand six hundred and sixty nine pounds in seventeen sixty three after we had delivered up the sovereignty of these islands but kept open a communication with them the imports were guadeloupe four hundred and twelve thousand three hundred and three pounds martinico three hundred and forty four thousand one hundred and sixty one pounds havana two hundred and forty nine thousand three hundred and eighty six pounds total imports in seventeen sixty three value one million five thousand and eight hundred and fifty pounds besides i find in the account of bullion imported and brought to the bank that during that period in which the intercourse with the havana was open we received at that one shop in treasure from that one place five hundred and fifty nine thousand eight hundred and ten pounds in the year seventeen sixty three three hundred and eighty nine thousand four hundred and fifty pounds so that the import from these places in that year amounted to one million three hundred and ninety five thousand three hundred pounds on this state the reader will observe that i take the imports from and not the exports to these conquests as the measure of the advantages which we derived from them. I do so for reasons which will be somewhat worthy the attention of such readers as are fond of this species of inquiry. I say therefore I choose the import article as the best, 
and indeed the only standard we can have of the value of the West India trade. Our export entry does not comprehend the greatest trade we carry on with any of the West India islands, the sale of Negroes, nor does it give any idea of two other advantages we draw from them, the remittances for money spent here and the payment of part of the balance of the North American trade. It is therefore quite ridiculous to strike a balance merely on the face of an excess of imports and exports in that commerce, though in most foreign branches it is, on the whole, the best method. If we should take that standard, it would appear that the balance with our own islands is, annually, several hundred thousand pounds against this country. Such is its aspect on the custom-house entries, but we know the direct contrary to be the fact. We know that the West Indians are always indebted to our merchants, and that the value of every shilling of West India produce is English property, so that our import from them, and not our export, ought always to be considered as their true value, and this corrective ought to be applied to all general balances of our trade, which are formed on the ordinary principles. If possible, this was more emphatically true of the French West India Islands whilst they continued in our hands. That none, or only a very contemptible part, of the value of this produce could be remitted to France, the author will see, perhaps with unwillingness, but with the clearest conviction, if he considers, that in the year 1763, after we had ceased to export to the Isles of Guadeloupe and Martinico, and to the Havana, and after the colonies were free to send all their produce to old France and Spain, if they had any remittance to make, he will see that we imported from those places in that year to the amount of £1,395,300. So far was the whole annual produce of these islands from being adequate to the payments of their annual call upon us, that this mighty additional importation was necessary, though not quite sufficient, to discharge the debts contracted in the few years we held them. The property, therefore, of their whole produce was ours, not only during the war, but even for more than a year after the peace. The author, I hope, will not again venture upon so rash and discouraging a proposition concerning the nature and effect of those conquests, as to call them a convenience to the remittances of France. He sees by this account that what he asserts is not only without foundation, but even impossible to be true. As to our trade at that time, he labours with all his might to represent it as absolutely ruined, or on the very edge of ruin. Indeed, as usual with him, he is often as equivocal in his expression as he is clear in his design. Sometimes he more than insinuates a decay of our commerce in that war. Sometimes he admits an increase of exports. But it is in order to depreciate the advantages we might appear to derive from that increase, whenever it should come to be proved against him. He tells you, that it was chiefly occasioned by the demands of our own fleets and armies, and, instead of bringing wealth to the nation, was to be paid for by oppressive taxes upon the people of England. Never was anything more destitute of foundation. It might be proved with the greatest ease, from the nature and quality of the goods exported, as well as from the situation of the places to which our merchandise was sent, 
and which the war could nowise affect, that the supply of our fleets and armies could not have been the cause of this wonderful increase of trade. Its cause was evident to the whole world, the ruin of the trade of France and our possession of her colonies. What wonderful effects this cause produced, the reader will see below, and he will form on that account some judgment of the author's candour or information. Admit, however, that a great part of our export, though nothing is more remote from fact, was owing to the supply of our fleets and armies. Was it not something? Was it not peculiarly fortunate for a nation that she was able from her own bosom to contribute largely to the supply of her armies, militating in so many distant countries? The author allows that France did not enjoy the same advantages, but it is remarkable throughout his whole book that those circumstances which have ever been considered as great benefits and decisive proofs of national superiority are, when in our hands, taken either in diminution of some other apparent advantage or even sometimes as positive misfortunes. The optics of that politician must be of a strange confirmation who beholds everything in this distorted shape. So far as to our trade. With regard to our navigation, he is still more uneasy at our situation and still more fallacious in his state of it. In his text, he affirms it to have been entirely engrossed by the neutral nations. This he asserts roundly and boldly and without the least concern, though it cost no more than a single glance of the eye upon his own margin to see the full refutation of this assertion. His own accounts proves against him that, in the year 1761, the British shipping amounted to 527,557 tonnes, the foreign to no more than 180,102. The medium of his six years British, 2,449,555 tonnes, foreign only 906,690. This state, his own, demonstrates that the neutral nations did not entirely engross our navigation. I am willing from a strain of candour to admit that this author speaks at random, that he is only slovenly and inaccurate, and not fallacious. In matters of account, however, this want of care is not excusable, and the difference between neutral nations entirely engrossing our navigation, and being only subsidiary to a vastly augmented trade, makes a most material difference to his argument. From that principle of fairness, though the author speaks otherwise, I am willing to suppose he means no more than that our navigation had so declined as to alarm us with the probable loss of this valuable object. I shall, however, show that his whole proposition, whatever modifications he may please to give it, is without foundation, that our navigation had not decreased, that, on the contrary, it had greatly increased in the war, that it had increased by the war, and that it was probable the same cause would continue to augment it to a still greater height. To what an height it is hard to say, had our success continued. But first I must observe 
I am much less solicitous whether his fact be true or no than whether his principle is well established. Cases are dead things. Principles are living and productive. I affirm then that, if in time of war our trade had the good fortune to increase, and at the same time a large, nay, the largest proportion of carriage had been engrossed by neutral nations, it ought not in itself to have been considered as a circumstance of distress. War is a time of inconvenience to trade. In general it must be straightened, and must find its way as it can. It is often happy for nations that they are able to call in neutral navigation. They all aim at it. France endeavoured at it, but could not compass it. Will this author say that, in a war with Spain, such an assistance would not be of absolute necessity, that it would not be the most gross of all follies to refuse it? In the next place, his method of stating a medium of six years of war and six years of peace, to decide this question, is altogether unfair. To say, in derogation of the advantages of a war, that navigation is not equal to what it was in time of peace, is what hitherto has never been heard of. No war ever bore that test but the war which he so bitterly laments. One may lay it down as a maxim that an average estimate of an object in a steady course of rising or of falling must in its nature be an unfair one, more particularly if the cause of the rise or fall be visible and its continuance in any degree probable. Average estimates are never just, but when the object fluctuates, and no reason can be assigned why it should not continue still to fluctuate. The author chooses to allow nothing at all for this. He has taken an average of six years of the war. He knew, for everybody knows, that the first three years were on the whole rather unsuccessful, and that, in consequence of this ill success, trade sunk, and navigation declined with it. But that grand delusion of the three last years turned the scale in our favour. At the beginning of that war, as in the commencement of every war, traders were struck with a sort of panic. Many went out of the freighting business. But by degrees, as the war continued, the terror wore off. The danger came to be better appreciated and better provided against. Our trade was carried on in large fleets under regular convoys and with great safety. The freighting business revived. The ships were fewer, but much larger, and though the number decreased, the tonnage was vastly augmented, insomuch that in 1761 the British shipping had risen by the author's own account to 527,557 tons. In the last year he has given us of the peace, it amounted to no more than 494,000 772. That is, in the last year of the war, it was 32,785 tonnes more than in the correspondent year of his peace average. No year of the peace exceeded it except one, and that but little. The fair account of the matter is this. Our trade had, as we have just seen, increased to so astonishing a degree in 1761 as to employ British and foreign ships to the amount of 707,659 tonnes, 
which is 149,500 more than we employed in the last year of the peace. Thus our trade increased more than a fifth. Our British navigation had increased likewise with this astonishing increase of trade, but was not able to keep pace with it, and we added about 120,000 tonnes of foreign shipping to the 60,000 which had been employed in the last year of the peace. Whatever happened to our shipping in the former years of the war, this would be no true state of the case at the time of the treaty. If we had lost something in the beginning, we had then recovered, and more than recovered, all our losses. Such is the ground of the doleful complaints of the author, that the carrying trade was wholly engrossed by the neutral nations. I have done fairly, and even very moderately, in taking this year, and not his average, as the standard of what might be expected in future, had the war continued. The author will be compelled to allow it, unless he undertakes to show, first, that the possession of Canada, Martinico, Guadeloupe, Granada, the Havana, the Philippines, the whole African trade, the whole East India trade, and the whole Newfoundland fishery, had no certain inevitable tendency to increase the British shipping, unless, in the second place, he can prove that those trades were, or might be, by law or indulgence, carried on in foreign vessels, and unless, thirdly, he can demonstrate that the premium of insurance on British ships was rising as the war continued. He can prove not one of these points. I will show him a fact more that is mortal to his assertions. It is the state of our shipping in 1762. The author had his reasons for stopping short at the preceding year. It would have appeared, had he proceeded farther, that our tonnage was in a course of uniform augmentation, owing to the freight derived from our foreign conquests, and to the perfect security of our navigation from our clear and decided superiority at sea. This, I say, would have appeared from the state of the two years. 1761, British, 527,557 tons. 1762, ditto, 559,537 tons. 1761, foreign, 180,102 tons. 1762, ditto, 129,502 tons. The last two years of the peace were in no degree equal to these. Much of the navigation of 1763 was also owing to the war. This is manifest from the large part of it employed in the carriage from the ceded islands, with which the communication still continued open. No such circumstances of glory and advantage ever attended upon a war. Too happy will be our lot, if we should again be forced into a war, to behold anything that shall resemble them, and if we were not then the better for them, it is not in the ordinary course of God's providence to mend our condition. In vain does the author declaim on the high premiums given for the loans during the war. His long note swelled with calculations on that subject, even supposing the most inaccurate of all calculations to be just would be entirely thrown away, did it not serve to raise a wonderful opinion of his financial skill 
in those who are not less surprised than edified when with a solemn face and mysterious air they are told that two and two make four for what else do we learn from this note that the more expense incurred by a nation the more money will be required to defray it that in proportion to the continuance of that expense will be the continuance of borrowing that the increase of borrowing and the increase of debt will go hand in hand and lastly that the more money you want the harder it will be to get it and that the scarcity of the commodity will enhance the price who ever doubted the truth or the insignificance of these propositions what do they prove that war is expensive and peace desirable they contain nothing more than a commonplace against war the easiest of all topics to bring them home to his purpose he ought to have shown that our enemies had money upon better terms which he has not shown neither can he i shall speak more fully to this point in another place he ought to have shown that the money they raised upon whatever terms had procured them a more lucrative return he knows that our expenditure purchased commerce and conquest theirs acquired nothing but defeat and bankruptcy thus the author has laid down his ideas on the subject of war next follow those he entertains on that of peace the treaty of paris upon the whole has his approbation indeed if his account of the war be just he might have spared himself all further trouble the rest is drawn on as an inevitable conclusion if the house of bourbon had the advantage she must give the law and the peace though it were much worse than it is had still been a good one but as the world is yet deluded on the state of that war other arguments are necessary and the author has in my opinion very ill supplied them he tells of many things we have got and of which he has made out a kind of bill this matter may be brought within a very narrow compass if we come to consider the requisites of a good peace under some plain distinct heads i apprehend they may be reduced to these one stability two indemnification three alliance as to the first the author more than obscurely hints in several places that he thinks the peace not likely to last however he does furnish a security a security in any light i fear but insufficient on his hypothesis surely a very odd one by stipulating for the entire possession of the continent says he the restored french islands are become in some measure dependent on the british empire and the good faith of france in observing the treaty guaranteed by the value at which she estimates their possession this author soon grows weary of his principles they seldom last him for two pages together when the advantages of the war were to be depreciated then the loss of the ultramarine colonies lightened the expenses of france facilitated her remittances and therefore her colonists put them into our hands according to this author's system the actual possession of those colonies ought to give us little or no advantage in the negotiation for peace and yet the chance of possessing them on a future occasion gives a perfect security for the preservation of that peace 
the conquest of the Havana, if it did not serve Spain, rather distressed England, says our author. But the molestation which her galleons may suffer from our station in Pensacola gives us advantages, for which we were not allowed to credit the nation for the Havana itself, a place surely fully as well situated for every external purpose as Pensacola, and of more internal benefit than ten thousand Pensacolas. The author sets very little by conquests. I suppose it is because he makes them so very likely. On this subject he speaks with the greatest certainty imaginable. We have, according to him, nothing to do but to go and take possession, whenever we think proper, of the French and Spanish settlements. It were better that he had examined a little what advantage the peace gave us towards the invasion of these colonies, which we did not possess before the peace. It would not have been amiss if he had consulted the public experience and our commanders concerning the absolute certainty of those conquests on which he is pleased to found our security. And if, after all, he should have discovered them to be so very sure and so very easy, he might at least, to preserve consistency, have looked a few pages back and, no unpleasing thing to him, listened to himself, where he says that the most successful enterprise could not compensate to the nation for the waste of its people by carrying on war in unhealthy climates. A position which he repeats again, page 9, so that, according to himself, his security is not worth the suit. According to fact, he has only a chance, God knows what a chance, of getting at it, and therefore, according to reason, the giving up the most valuable of all possessions, in hopes to conquer them back, under any advantage of situation, is the most ridiculous security that ever was imagined for the peace of a nation. It is true his friends did not give up Canada. They could not give up everything. Let us make the most of it. We have Canada. We know its value. We have not the French any longer to fight in North America, and from this circumstance we derive considerable advantages. But here let me rest a little. The author touches upon a string which sounds under his fingers but a tremulous and melancholy note. North America was once indeed a great strength to this nation, in opportunity of ports, in ships, in provisions, in men. We found her a sound, an active, a vigorous member of the empire. I hope, by wise management, she will again become so. But one of our capital present misfortunes is her discontent and disobedience. To which of the author's favourites this discontent is owing, we all know but too sufficiently. It would be a dismal event if this foundation of his security, and indeed of all our public strength, should, in reality, become our weakness. And if all the powers of this empire, which ought to fall with a compacted weight upon the head of our enemies, should be dissipated and distracted by a jealous vigilance, or by hostile attempts upon one another. Ten Canadas cannot restore that security for the peace, and for everything valuable to this country, 
which we have lost along with the affection and the obedience of our colonies. He is the wise minister, he is the true friend to Britain, who shall be able to restore it. To return to the security for the peace, the author tells us that the original great purposes of the war were more than accomplished by the treaty. Surely he has experience and reading enough to know that, in the course of a war, events may happen that render its original very far from being its principal purpose. This original may dwindle by circumstances, so as to become not a purpose of the second or even the third magnitude. I trust this is so obvious that it will not be necessary to put cases for its illustration. In that war, as soon as Spain entered into the quarrel, the security of North America was no longer the sole nor the foremost object. The family compact had been, I know, not how long before in agitation. But then it was that we saw produced into daylight an action, the most odious and most formidable of all the conspiracies against the liberties of Europe that ever has been framed. The war with Spain was the first fruits of that league, and a security against that league ought to have been the fundamental point of a pacification with the powers who compose it. We had materials in our hands to have constructed that security in such a manner as never to be shaken. But how did the virtuous and able men of our author labour for this great end? They took no one step towards it. On the contrary, they countenanced, and indeed, as far as it depended on them, recognised it in all its parts, for our plenipotentiary treated with those who acted for the two crowns as if they had been different ministers of the same monarch. The Spanish minister received his instructions not from Madrid, but from Versailles. This was not hid from our ministers at home, and the discovery ought to have alarmed them, if the good of their country had been the object of their anxiety. They could not but have seen that the whole Spanish monarchy was melted down into the cabinet of Versailles, but they thought this circumstance an advantage, as it enabled them to go through with their work the more expeditiously. Expedition was everything to them, because France might happen during a protracted negotiation to discover the great imposition of our victories. In the same spirit they negotiated the terms of the peace. If it were thought advisable not to take any positive security from Spain, the most obvious principles of policy dictated that the burden of the sessions ought to fall upon France, and that everything which was of grace and favour should be given to Spain. Spain could not, on her part, have executed a capital article in the family compact, which obliged her to compensate the losses of France. At least she could not do it in America, for she was expressly precluded by the Treaty of Utrecht, from ceding any territory or giving any advantage in trade to that power. What did our ministers do? They took from Spain the territory of Florida, an object of no value except to show our dispositions to be quite equal, at least, towards both powers, and they enabled France to compensate Spain by the gift of Louisiana, loading us with all the harshness, leaving the act of kindness with France, and opening thereby a door to the fulfilling of this, 
the most consolidating article of the family compact. Accordingly, that dangerous league, thus abetted and authorised by the English ministry, without an attempt to invalidate it in any way, or in any of its parts, exists to this hour, and has grown stronger and stronger every hour of its existence. As to the second component of a good peace, compensation, I have but little trouble. The author has said nothing upon that head. He has nothing to say. After a war of such expense, this ought to have been a capital consideration, but on what he has been so prudently silent, I think it right to speak plainly. All our new acquisitions together, at this time, scarce afford matter of revenue, either at home or abroad, sufficient to defray the expense of their establishments. Not one shilling towards the reduction of our debt. Guadeloupe or Martinico alone would have given us material aid, much in the way of duties, much in the way of trade and navigation. A good ministry would have considered how a renewal of the Asiento might have been obtained. We had as much right to ask it at the Treaty of Paris as at the Treaty of Utrecht. We had incomparably more in our hands to purchase it. Floods of treasure would have poured into this kingdom from such a source, and, under proper management, no small part of it would have taken a public direction and have fructified an exhausted exchequer. If this gentleman's hero of finance, instead of flying from a treaty, which, though he now defends, he could not approve and would not oppose, if he, instead of shifting into an office, which removed him from the manufacture of the treaty, had, by his credit with the then great director, acquired for us these, or any of these objects, the possession of Guadeloupe or Martinico, or the renewal of the Asiento, he might have held his head high in his country, because he would have performed real service, ten thousand times more real service than all the economy of which this writer is perpetually talking, or all the little tricks of finance which the expertest juggler of the treasury can practice, could amount to in a thousand years. But the occasion is lost, the time is gone, perhaps for ever. As to the third requisite, alliance, there too the author is silent. What strength of that kind did they acquire? They got no one new ally, they stripped the enemy of not a single old one. They disgusted, how justly or unjustly matters not, every ally we had, and from that time to this we stand friendless in Europe. But of this naked condition of their country, I know some people are not ashamed. They have their system of politics. Our ancestors grew great by another. In this manner, these virtuous men concluded the peace, and their practice is only consonant to their theory. Many things more might be observed on this curious head of our author's speculations, but, taking leave of what the writer says in his serious part, if he be serious in any part, I shall only just point out a piece of his pleasantry. No man, I believe, ever denied that the time for making peace is that in which the best terms may be obtained. But what that time is, together with the use that has been made of it, 
we are to judge by seeing whether terms adequate to our advantages and to our necessities have been actually obtained. Here is the pinch of the question to which the author ought to have set his shoulders in earnest. Instead of doing this, he slips out of the harness by a jest and sneeringly tells us that, to determine this point, we must know the secrets of the French and Spanish cabinets, and that Parliament was pleased to approve the Treaty of Peace without calling for the correspondence concerning it. How just this sarcasm on that Parliament may be, I say not, but how becoming in the author, I leave it to his friends to determine. End of section 19